0: continue. We're returning now after a few weeks off into our teaching series verse by verse through the epistle to the Colossians and our text today is Colossians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 as he finishes a uh, portion of scripture that's been rich in meaning for us. So with me will you hear once again the word of God. through him. This is God's deep and rich word. It is the word of Christ. May from this message, we all have that word dwell more richly within us. Amen. You could be seated. Thank you. Well, as I said, we're returning and uh, take just a moment or two to bring you back into the focus of this passage in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, the whole chapter begins at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, with the theme that Paul has in this section that we're just finishing today, and that is that believers have died to an old life and they've risen to a new life. We see that right in the very pr- first part of the chapter, verse 1. By the way, have your Bibles open or turned on. We're going to be shooting back and forth into Colossians 3 a little bit. Not all these verses will be on the screen. In chapter 3 verse 1 he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, born into a new life by the power of the Holy Spirit, it means you've also died to an old life. That's verse 3, for you have died and your new life is hidden with Christ in God. So we've died to an old life dominated by our will and by sin and we've risen spiritually in a in an an invisible miracle to live into a new life and buy new life in Christ. So that's the beginning of the theme. And in verse 5, he started to get practical. And he used an image from their baptism services in the first century. When a person was baptized, they walked to the edge of the baptistry in their old clothes, and they dropped the, their old robe off their back, went down to the baptistry, down into the water, up. And as they stepped to the other side of the baptistry, they were, had a new white, sparkling white robe placed on their shoulders as a sign that they put off an old way of life, like an old garment, and they were stepping into and putting on a new way of life, died to the old, living into the new, and so he uses that imagery and he says put to death therefore or put off take off that old way of life and put on later on verse 12 a new way of life so you can see how his how the uh, the focus is there and the flow is there now um, he says as you put off the desires and actions of your old life and put on the new desires and actions of the new life You're living and doing that supernaturally. That can only be done by faith under the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I've called this section of messages on living a supernatural life, because he's the only way we can do this. There's four realms of your life that he's talking about. One we've already seen is your personal life. That's verses 5 to 11, where he talked about putting off some of the worst and most difficult habits of life. Immorality is one in verse 5, and then uh, harsh relationships and angry relationships, unforgiving relationships, and that's verse 8 to 11. And so he talked about putting that old part of your life, those old patterns down. So that's your personal life. Then he got last time we were together into your relational life. That's verses 12 to 15 a rich the scripture that talked about how to put on as God's chosen ones a new way of relating to each other in the love of God and how beautiful that is. It's filled with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and we discovered the riches of that life. That was the second dimension. The third dimension we're going to get into today is verses 16 and 17. And that's how we're we're to relate in the overall life of the church, not just our personal relationships, which can involve anything, relationships with with individuals, non-believers, what have you. But now verses 16 and 17 talk about the life of the church and how the word of God is to permeate it all and change it all. That's what we'll study today. And then next time, in verse 18 and onward into chapter four, he gets into what I would call your day-to-day life. And he talks about how to live out your new life in your marriage, in your parenting, in your working life and your work, your life out in the marketplace and so on. So that's what we'll get into as we open the passages further next time. But today it's all about how church life is to be affected by your life in the word of God, verses 16 and 17. We know this is about the church plural as, as, as a gathered people because, well, the Greek words are all plural. The, the word you there is, is the plural form. You wouldn't see that, but you can certainly see that he's talking about one another because right in the middle of verse 16, he's talking about relating one to another. So this is the body of Christ and how we're to live supernaturally. He's talking about a supernatural church living out that new life. And so really he's answering a question, and that is, what does a church where God is at work look like? That's really how to analyze this passage. He's describing what a church where God is at work really looks like. And there's two major ways he would answer that question. And you can look at it and your Bible's often pretty easy to follow it in its flow because it's built around commands and there's two major commands in this text. First, the first one leads off verse 16, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly," and then that's described. The next major command is leads off verse 17, "And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus." So there's two big answers to the question, what does a church where God is at work look like? And he gives us those. So I'll just build my message around his message and his writing. So what does a church look like when God is at work in that church? First of the two answers is this. It's a place where the word of God is deeply treasured. It's a place where the word of God is deeply treasured. He talks about letting the word of quiet Christ dwell in you richly. The word phrase there is let is actually a command. He's saying, listen, do this as a church. Be this as a church. Do this as an individual believer. Be this way when you come into the fellowship. It's a place where the word of God is deeply treasured. Now, I'm not talking about a church that just preaches the word or teaches the word in a formal way, or in an information way. He's talking here about how the word of God fills a church, look at this, because it fills its individual people. It fills the hearts of the individual believers and they make up the church and the word of God that influences their lives spills out and it influences all of our lives and the life of the church. So it's talking about personally walking with God. So this is not a passage for preachers. There's other passages that talk about preaching. This is a passage for people. That's not saying preachers are not people. Don't get me wrong. Although some of you think that. No, it's about the individual in the body of Christ. So this is about all of us. It's about you and your walk. You need to be a person where the word of God is deeply treasured. That needs to be your life. And if there's a gathering of people who deeply treasure the word, that church becomes a place that's influenced by how the word flows in their lives. And there's four ways that he describes it here. What's a word filled church? What's a church where the word of God is deeply treasured? Well, it's number one, a place where it's treasured in thought. He says here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the idea here is let it really become something you concentrate on, you're influenced by, you're taught by, you're living in. It is deeply influential in your life and therefore it's influential in our life. Let's pick this apart a little bit. There's a lot of beautiful things here. He says, let the word of Christ, what is that talking about? It's talking, it's a way of describing all of the Word of God. But it specifically is, is the scripture that often emphasizes the gospel of Christ and the life of Christ. But it's a shorthand way of saying, let the Word of God, in all of its authority and beauty and promise and power, be a part of your living inner life. Old Testament, New Testament, prophets, gospels, epistles. Uh, and, and historical books, every dimension of it, the whole word of God. Now, why did he have to make a point about this to these, these people? You would say it's kind of obvious. Well, it's not obvious to any generation of Christians because every generation of Christians gets troubled by false teachers who want to add to the word of God. And we know that was what was happening in Colossae, right? They were being troubled by false teachers. That's why Paul wrote the epistle. And these false teachers had come and added their own revelation to the word of God. They'd added their own human traditions and rules to the gospel of God. And their human philosophies had started to confuse the people and even attract some of them. And that's the way it is in every generation. And Paul has to say here, listen, as these people bring all their added knowledge and their added books and their added inspiration reject it all don't let their teaching influence your life you let the word of god the word of christ dwell in you richly and that's all you need that's the whole focus of this book when he talks about jesus you have everything in christ we need to be aware of that today because it's a tendency in every age to want to know the new And, you know, there's a phrase among Bible teachers that if it's new, it's probably not true. So I think that's a pretty good phrase. Because the mind of man constantly turns the wrong corner again and again and again. And it's not satisfied with the clear revelation of the Word of God. And so Christians are influenced by people that bring all kinds of new interpretations of the Bible or new additions to the Bible or new revelations for the Bible or whatever it is. And we kind of get intrigued by it because that's the habit of the fallen human heart to know more. That was Eve's problem, was it not? And so you got to remember that today. This is relevant for our time because there's all kinds of intriguing truths that people want to add to your Bible that can distract you. Years ago, a Bible teacher named Octavius Winslow, he had to be from like years ago, wouldn't you say? Although he could be a rap artist today. Let me take that back. (laughs) Octavius. He wrote to his church in that in his time, he said, the tendency of the age is to substitute the writings of man for the book of God. What a phrase! the thinking of man for the word of God, the writings of man for the book of God. But then he says, but the divine life of the soul is not fed and nourished by the profound discoveries of science or the brilliant flowers of genius or the dreams of a poetical imagination. That's important. Your human mind might be stirred by what false teachers say or people add to the word of God or challenge in the word of God. But the new you, that reborn person with that new mind, the Bible says you have in first Corinthians chapter two, it's not fed by anything other than the word of Christ. Hear me. You might be intrigued by lo- other than the word of Christ, interested by other than the word of Christ, maybe even thrilled with the new discoveries of stuff outside the word of Christ. But this is the only thing that will feed your inner man. It's the only thing you might be intrigued, but you won't be fed by anything else. So you've heard me say it many times. I just said it again. The word of Christ is all you need. That's part of the, why he wrote this in this text. Now, it's not simply, though, having an academic knowledge or being around preaching. He says it's, it's a word that's supposed to dwell in you. Look at that next phrase. In fact, dwell in you richly. What is that all about? How does a concept of truth dwell in me? This is kind of metaphysical, Pastor. I'm not even sure how that would translate in my life. Well, it's really not that hard to understand. Dwell within. The Greek word Paul used was enoikeo, and it it came from oikeo, which meant a household or a, a house, and being in it or dwelling in it. And so he says, let the word of God take up residence in your life, in your thinking, in your heart, in you and in your church. But he's talking about your spiritual life. He says, become a person in whom the Bible dwells. It's, that, that, that it's taken up its home in you. It's not just a passing acquaintance with the Bible. It's not being around a Bible teacher like me once or twice a month. It's not just listening to Christian radio so you can say you're kind of under the influence of that. It's, it's not any of those things, it's not just being aware of the Word of God, it's letting the Word of God come into your inner life and your mind and deeply enrich you and abide in you. It's different than just knowing about the Bible. It's being filled with the Bible. I mean, if if a person walked through a house to take a look at it, I mean, they walk through an open house. You've done this, I'm sure. Walk through an open house, open the closet doors, take a look at the carpet, catch a, catch a view of the breakfast nook and whatever, and then you walk out again from the open house. Have you dwelt in that house? No. In fact, if they found you the next evening, they'd probably call the sheriff. No. You pass through. You took a look. I mean, if you go to a and b next weekend and you really love the place... Are you still going to be there on Monday morning? No, because you don't own the place and you don't dwell there. You stayed there. You passed through. A person who dwells in a house, abides, resides, remains, continues. It's their home. And that's what he says about the word of God. It's not to be something you know a little bit about. It's something that's in your memory that's never forgotten. It's, it's moving through your heart. It's loved in, in your affections. It's what your understanding is full of and grasping. It's what your mind is focused on. The Word of God, He settled in your heart. It's like when when somebody moves into a new house, after a few months, you ask them the question, so have you guys finally settled in? That's what this word means. Let the Word of God settle deeply into your life and become a part of your thinking and your values and your beliefs and be, as Liz mentioned earlier, what you turn to in times of difficulty. Now, what does that look like in a person's life? Well, scripture gives us so many examples, but here's three. I mean, Job understood this in Job twenty-three twelve after all the trials of his life and in the midst of the troubles of his life, he says, I've not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He was entranced with the word. He knew he needed the word and he made great space in his life for the word. When it came to missing a meal or missing the word, guess which one Job missed? You missed the meal. Have you ever gotten so involved in meditating in the scripture and making new discoveries in the word that time went by and you didn't even know it? I'm hoping you've had those experiences. That's the engagement of the new man through his new mind with the great truth of the word of God. Have you been in times of great struggle in your life facing a decision or a difficulty where you've actually set aside time in the evenings where you've maybe gone on a prayer and fasting process where you took yourself under the word of God and looked for God's will from the word. That's what Job said was, was treasuring the word and pursuing it more than other things in your life. So that's kind of what it looks like in trouble. But how about in, just in the everyday dimensions of life well, David did this, the author of Psalm 119 in Psalm 119 11, He says, thy word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee in the everyday battles of my life. I need the word of God. I can't please him if I'm not enriched by his word and led by his word and powered by his word. I will sin against him if I do not treasure his word in my heart. Have you ever tried to read that verse backwards? It's very instructive. Thy word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against thee. What's the corollary? I will sin against thee if I have not treasured thy word in my heart, dwelling in you richly. That's kind of what it looks like. So if you're drawn to study the word of God, don't resist that drawing because that's what God wants for you. If you're a memorizer of scripture, welcome to David's cadre. Welcome to his life. That's where we get that discipline. Maybe you're going through difficult and depressing times and some of the things you're facing may not change. Well, welcome to the life of Jeremiah the prophet who was called into his ministry and God said in advance, I want you to know that throughout the decades you're going to be preaching, none of them are going to listen to you. They're going to have foreheads like flint. They'll resist you and they won't believe you. And the nation will slide into judgment during during your ministry and there's nothing you'll be able to do to stop it and oh by the way for the privilege of preaching they'll torture you and throw you into a hole in the ground and leave you for dead now would you say wow lord thanks for this call i always knew i was gifted to do this my ministry time has come are you kidding jeremiah only by the power of the spirit said lord i'll go and in that life, he did live so much sorrow that the Bible scholars call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, don't they? Yet in the midst of all that, how did he sustain himself under unchangeable things? Jeremiah 15:16. "Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Hard, unchangeable times. And yet joy and delight are possible. How? Because the word of God gives you that realm in which you live. It's the realm of new life, the hidden life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, no matter what you're going through. And he fellowships with you in his deep truth. And you find your joy there, not in what you're living through or not in what you achieve. That's sort of what it looks like. And those that are experienced in the spiritual life, the longer you walk with God, the more you privately treasure His Word. It's an an understanding learned by everyone. I've seen honored great Christian leaders have a deep walk personally in the Word. I've been able to be around them. In my earlier years, I worked in what you could call megachurch ministry. I was on the staff of an influential megachurch on the West Coast. And, and later, uh, I got involved in Christian broadcasting. Some of you may not know that. I was involved in Christian broadcasting for about a decade and uh, ended up as a voice talent and then a radio talk show host. And my role allowed me to operate in some pretty high levels of Christian influence, to interview people that, were theological trend shapers and brilliant people, so I've had the chance to be around the honored, and I I had a chance to look into the lives of some I'll never forget. Um, when I was a young young pastor on the staff of this megachurch, we hosted Bible conferences, and some of the great leaders and the Bible expositors from America at that time would come to our church. And since I was kind of the young guy, one of the younger guys on staff, I was assigned to be the gopher for one of the conference speakers. And basically my job was to make sure he had all his needs met. I drove him to and from the airport and made sure he got lunch. And if he needed something delivered, I I was just supposed to follow him around for three days. It was a great pleasure. The individual I was assigned, maybe some of you know him, most of you won't, He's with the Lord now with Dr. Harold Lindzell, just out of maybe a few, well, not that many. He was an influential man of God. He battled for the inerrancy of scripture when the Southern Baptist denomination was going to abandon it. And he single-handedly started that whole trend back to believing in the Bible, the inerrancy of it. He later became the editor of Christianity Today in a time when it was truly a more trustworthy magazine than it is today took over that vision of Billy Graham and others. He was a massive intellect, two doctorates, I think. Massive intellect. And Dr. Linzel was my assignment, and so he would preach in these sessions, and then I was supposed to kind of follow him around and do whatever, you know, I was following around. I I wanted to teach the Bible. I wanted to grow up someday and be a pastor, you know, and I wanted to be like him. And so I followed him around, but I'll never forget that during all of our times together... Every time I saw him, when he wasn't answering a question from somebody, he was off in a corner by himself and he had a big red Bible that he carried around and he was in the book. It was remarkable. Every time I found him before the next session, he was there by himself, just quietly reading with eyes closed and meditating and taking himself before the Lord in fellowship with the Word of God in front of him. Time after time, I'd go to find Dr. Linzel, and he was there in a corner. I could, could, I could predict it after a while. A lot of the other guys were out hobnobbing and in meetings and whatnot. He stole away to be with the Bible Such a gentle soul to this magnificent intellect. I remember when we did talk, he didn't talk about himself or the conference. He asked questions about me. I was a young dad at the time. In fact, we were expecting our first daughter, Laura. And I told him about that, and I was so new to everything. And I'll never forget the last time I saw him, I came in to get him for the last session. He was over in a corner, away from the others, reading his big red Bible. And I came up and said, um, Dr. Linzel, it's time for your final session. He looked at me and he says, I'm so glad you came back. We forgot to pray for that baby. And I'll never forget his gnarled hands coming out over that young man's hand and praying that Laura's birth would be safe, that early she would come to know the Lord Jesus as her Savior, and that she would follow him all of her life. And by the way, All three of those prayers were answered so that man was filled with the word the honored one a man who knew it backward and forward could not get enough of it he was letting it richly dwell in his soul and it poured out in love from his life so i've seen it among honored ones but you know if you've walked with the lord a long time you also know that humble ones know how much they need the word too Contrast Dr. Lenzel with a dear man in my life who's been my spiritual mentor now for 25 years. Unlike Dr. Lenzel with his multiple doctorates and his tremendous pedigree, this friend who's been my mentor grew up in a dirt poor Home that his father built out of pallets from a junkyard in Appalachian poverty. He left school at the sixth grade like everybody for every other generation in his family had at the point in which he said, I was able to read a comic book that was about it. That was my knowledge level. And he went out and began scraping for a living to help support his family like all of the 11 children did. living a life of immense poverty and struggle and deep sin entered into in his life. But then the Lord Jesus Christ, he likes to say, one night I was told to go to church by my sister. She says, I don't know why, but God has spoken to my heart and you need to be in church tonight. He went just to get her off of his back, he said. He knew he didn't know the Lord. And that night, through the preaching of a simple country preacher, my friend likes to say, God arrested me. (laughs) I couldn't get to the front fast enough. And he was wonderfully born again. And from that night onward, God gave him a deep hunger to know the word really wasn't in a church that went that deep in the word so he decided to do it on his own and he became began to hunger for the scripture and he just started at the beginning in genesis chapter one verse one and he says he literally taught himself how to read going through the scripture i know he's been through the bible dozens and dozens of times he came to love it so much and I will tell you that I've sat in his presence. I make a point of being with him every week because I need that accountability, but also that marvelous wisdom. And like I said, I've been with PhDs. I've been with mega church leaders. I've been with well-known authors. And I can say that I don't think I've heard anything of the depth from them that I've heard from this simple man of God. Today, he has a ministry of letting the Lord lead struggling people to him. And he disciples them the same way God discipled him. He says, okay, this is your Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And he's taken people through that and their lives have been transformed, me included. And so you see, this is where the Lord draws every heart, both the honored and the humble. And the more, and by the way, His life has been a catalog of suffering and heartbreak. It hasn't gotten any better. But oh, the richness of the God that He knows! You say, "I want to be like that." Well, according to this book, we all ought to be like that. <laughs> Boy, I'm going to be in trouble now because I only got. Short amount of time, make the rest of this come together. In thought, we're to let the word of God richly dwell within us. Hold on. Secondly, in relationships, go back to the text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There's how the Bible doesn't just come into your mind so it's your your, your personal library. It flows out of your heart. The word of God into your heart moves into other lives and you become someone who teaches and admonishes. This isn't just in the formal sense of, of pastor doing it or what have you. It's how believers do it. Now there's two things happen in your relationships. One is you're going to be led to teach. You're going to be led to, to open the word of God. What's that look like? I've already taught you the word from earlier in the chapter. Does did It meant to provide instruction and lay out truth in an orderly fashion. So somebody understands it. We're to know the word of God enough. Listen to me so that we understand doctrine. You can understand it. You must understand it. And then believe me, if you're just in it, meditating on it, as my good friend's life has shown me, you will become doctrinally wise, and you'll understand truth, and you'll be able to pour it into the hearts of other believers. Not only that, you'll be led to admonish them, and they you. What's that? Oh, I already taught you this one from earlier in the passages. Nuthatao came from two Greek words, to place in the mind. Teaching is a positive leading into inspiring truth, and the is warning teaching to put into somebody's mind ahead of time that if they go down that direction, there's going to be consequences. So we teach and we admonish one another. We might, admonishing is a strange word to us today, especially in our totally independent culture where we basically say, nobody should have the right to admonish me. Well, get ready. God has the right to do it, and he just might do it through a spirit-filled believer, There's a phrase that's running around a lot today, particularly in our younger culture. Hey, you be you. You know what? That's biblically impossible. God says the whole problem is you being you. (laughs) No, you be him. So we admonish that you could use the phrase correct or get on somebody or warn somebody. That's going to come out into relationships. Be one of those folks. And it just comes out in the normal flow of your conversations and who you are. don't you love those dear Christian people that when you bring up a question or an idea or even refer to a verse without even opening their Bible, what comes out of them? Other Bible verses that relate to that and they say, oh yeah, that's such a rich thing. And you know, the word of God also reminds us of this and there's like a well coming out of them and you're just in a teaching moment with them or an admonishing moment. That's kind of what this is talking about. Third, it comes out in worship. Look, look at this. If the word of God is richly dwelling in you and in a church, you're going to be teaching and admonishing one another, and you're going to be singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worship comes alive in a word-filled church. Word-saturated saints sing. I've had people come to our church. Now, we're not you know, an over-the-top you know, church in any way, but, but they say, one thing I noticed when I visited your church is your people seeing as opposed to watch. I thought, well, that's a great compliment. And I wondered about that. And, and I realized that great worship comes when the truth of worship meets the truth of the word that's already in your heart and they join each other. So word-filled life ends up being a worshiping life. And he talks about the different ways they worship. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all three of those words, are, they describe different kinds of worship. So that, by the way, points out the fact that there's not just one way to worship in church, there are multiple ways that song is used to worship because they had three different styles. Psalms, that's the Greek word, psalmos. Gee, what a, what a surprise. And it talked about singing the psalms from the word of God. Psalms are all about praise to God, right? For the most part, interacting with him vertically. And we do that today. Some of our songwriters do a good job. Some of the best are Shane and Shane. They'll write a song. A song based on Psalm 73, for example, that says, I will wait for you, I will wait for you on your word, I will rely. I will wait for you, surely wait for you till my soul is satisfied. That's psalmic praise today. Or just singing scriptures unto the Lord. Then there's hymns, he says. "Hymnos" was the Greek. What a surprise. <laughs> Those were songs that were specifically dedicated to, to talk about truths of God and put doctrine into words and they were filled with praise to the truth about God. So psalms were praise to God. Hymns were, were songs that, that taught truth about God. And the church used those often to teach doctrine in the midst. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 uh, through 13, uh, 19 in your bible read verse 20 actually read that sometime some scholars think that was actually lifted out of a hymn that the church had written for itself to teach itself doctrine it's got a rhythm to it and you can notice the flow of that And we seek to do that in the old hymns of the faith, but also in some of the newer ones. One of the ones we sang today had a certain flavor of talking about the Holy One. Oh, praise the Lord, the Holy One. Oh, praise the King of perfect love. That's doctrinal truth about God. A thousand times my soul will sing hallelujah, yet I will sing a thousand more. That's hymnic. That's describing the greatness of God. It's truth about God. And then they also sang spiritual songs. What were these? Ode, oide in the Greek from uh, Ado, which meant to adore. And these were songs about one's personal experience of God. Psalms were praised to God. Hymns were truth about God. And, and spiritual songs were thanking God for how he's worked in your life. We do a lot of that today, don't we? So much of praise Today is like that, and, and it always has been. And you remember these. These are songs that you don't have to go to a hymn book or see something on a screen to remember how to sing. I'm going to take a risk here, but here's an example. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Do you know it? Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. That's a spiritual song. Please, that's a spiritual song. I I just wore myself out singing. Oh, I really appreciate it. But see, that what, what I'm trying to illustrate is that these are the songs of the heart, and all of those make up worship. There's a, f- a place for every form and dimension, but the big point is you're not going to worship if you're not filled with the Word. When the Word in your heart meets worship in the life, they come together and they energize, energize each other. So, you know, I mean, sometimes some people say, you know, I just don't get a lot out of worship. Never have at any church I've been to you know, well, it could be a problem on the platform, but it also could maybe be a problem in the heart. Fourth is an attitude. He talks about you do all of this and you have a life that lives in the word and, and you're doing it with thankfulness in your heart to God. Interesting word for thankful meant thankful or thanksgiving. It meant uh, to thank him, thank him in his grace. It had the word charis built right in the middle of it. And it It meant, I think, thanking God for his saving and sustaining grace. And you can do that, even if you're going through hard times, if the word of God is your baseline truth. It's the unchangeable dimension. And as your life is filled with the word of God, you're always going to find his grace sustaining you. And I'll just put it this way. And if times are hard, if the word is in your heart, praise is probably going to be in your mouth or it'll be a lot closer. Think about Paul and Silas. Philippian jail, remember the story? Unjustly jailed, cruelly stuck in the stocks, maybe facing greater punishment. And my Bible says in Acts 16, fastened in the stocks, chained, along about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing humnas, hymns of praise to God. How's that spiritually possible? If the word of God is the place of your richer reality, your outer reality, you challenge it in praise. So what's a church look like where God is at work? It's a place where the word of God is deeply treasured. That's the first dominating command, verse 16. Let's finish with the second, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a powerful text, but for some of us, it's an intimidating text. And you know what? I just can't quite take the totality out of this. It's not a text about exceptions. It's a text that says, as a disciple, you need to grow in every area of your life so that you're living it more for Him. It involves two things living your total life for Him. Notice what He says. And whatever. You do. Do you see a little uh, exemption clause in there? I've, I've been looking for one all week, quite frankly. And I didn't find one. There's not exceptions, whatever. And then he says, in word or deed. Oh, my goodness. That'll work for you in a challenging way either way. A lot of people get into certain outer deeds that they think are Christian that basically satisfy the requirements. Like they, they're a certain place at a certain time or they go to a, a thing or they, they contribute to a ministry or they maybe serve here or there. Those are deeds, but if you're not letting the word of God richly dwell in your life and you're not ministering to others with the word of God and maybe there's parts of your life that are not in line with him, you're living in deeds but not in word. But then there's the total opposite, where lots of people can quote the Bible and and spend time in the Bible, but they're not living it out in relationship or ministry. And so they're kind of imbalanced on the other side. I don't want to know where you're at today. I struggle with both. But see, there's no spiritual secular split. Ow. Every dimension of life. So it's living your total life, and here's the second for God's approval. He says, You do everything. Everything. There's the third total word. Whatever, word or deed, do everything. No exceptions, no secular spiritual split, no part of your life that you can hold on to as your own and not do for His glory. You do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So people say, Unpack what that means when it says in the name of Jesus. Is that some kind of spiritual formula that I, I pray over my day? You know, I want to live in the name. No. Basically, the best way I can explain it is that whatever you do, you want it to be consistent with who he is and what he would want. You want it to be consistent with who he is and what he would want. And if you're in the Word, you'll know more of who he is and what he would want, right? I mean, there's lots of ways I've sought to illustrate it. Some years ago now, we, we had to put you know, some estate planning in order, my, my wife and I, and, and one of the things that was required uh, was a durable power of attorney for each of us. What's a durable power of attorney? Well, it's a document that authorizes somebody else to make decisions in your name should a crisis arise and you're not there or you're not cognizant, you're not able to make a decision. A power of attorney. And the person whom I've written in in my power of attorney is empowered and expected to act in my name with full legal authority as though I myself were making the decision. Listen to that last phrase as though I myself were making the decision. Maybe you've come into a situation where. A a loved one, particularly one in, in older years, and they're incapacitated and they're facing a health situation and you have to meet with the doctor and your responsibility and your heart is to only do what they would have wanted. I'm sure you've many of you have been there. That power of attorney gives you that freedom, but it also gives you that responsibility. In a way, you can look at the fact that when the Lord Jesus Christ left, He said to his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I'm giving you a temporary power of attorney. It's not durable. It's not eternal. One day I'm going to call it in, and I'm going to examine how you handled my affairs, which is your life. And did you live your life as the Father sent me to live mine? So the verse really says... Whatever we say in life, we're to say it as though Christ were saying it, as if he would say it if he were here. Whatever we do in life, we're to do it as though Christ would do it if he were here. Whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Our life has been given to us by him to handle in this way. So look at it that way, in his name. It's, it's doing whatever I would I'm doing in this situation, saying whatever I'm going to say, believing whatever I'm going to believe as though... He would do it. It can mark the whole way you look at every dimension. Like I said, there's no secular or sacred split. Maybe an example from a believer of the past, Johann Sebastian Bach. I don't know if you knew this, but he had a faith in Christ. The great composer of the Baroque era. Aren't you proud of me that I know what a Baroque era? I, I really don't. Um, <laughs> but it was in the notes that I found, so... We do know he was a great composer, yes? He was also a great organist. And uh, scholars say he was one of the most productive musical geniuses in history. But they also say, one scholar writes this, he was indeed a Christian who lived with the Bible. In fact, one other scholar said that Johann Sebastian Bach was a theologian who just happened to work with a keyboard. Wow. Often at the bottom of a manuscript, when he would write a work of music, he would write the letters I-N-D-N-J-C, which were an abbreviation for the Latin words, in nomine Domini nostri Jesu Christi, which means in English, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thought that was cool. He was putting into life what this verse calls us to do. He viewed his work as part of a calling of God. He viewed his labor as being done in the place of Christ, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought about that, and I asked myself, Joe, could you write at, Write those words at the end of a conversation you've had? Or the workday, you just finished, or an evening's entertainment, where my budget or, you know, just about everything in my life would fill in the next line, or fill in the blank. And could I write them at the end of my life? Could I live a life so that I would be able to write at the end, not perfectly, but passionately, I offer this life to you, O Lord. I've sought to live it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will get a chance to explain that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul put this into words long before Bach really reacted to it. He said, so whether we are at home or away, Living in this life or suddenly in his presence, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, It doesn't say the Christians are going to be judged for their sin. No, that was all taken at the cross. The judgment seat, the word is Bema seat. It meant a seat of reward and it's a time when we get to heaven where we'll be taken before the throne of Christ and he will evaluate how we handled that temporary power of attorney. And he will evaluate how we lived our Christian lives. He says, if, have you been involved in good things or evil things? The word evil there is a Greek word that meant worthless. We're not going to be judged for our sin. That was all taken at the cross, but we will be rewarded for the dimensions of our life that we lived in his name, faithfully for him. Those are the good things. Everything else Jesus looks at as worthless and it won't receive reward. So we'll all have a chance to explain how we've lived. That's sobering. Yeah, you know, maybe you're sitting there going, wow, 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 wow. I'm wincing and wondering, how can I do that? Well, the Word of God dwelling dwelling richly within you will press you to it. It happens as a person is Word-filled and Spirit-controlled. You're probably already doing it. You know, it's been my observation over the years that many people who are rich in the Word like this are people who have had to endure suffering. Suffering. Now, if God does bring suffering into your life to press you to his word, accept it and value it. You see, so much of the rest of the church around the world already does. I'll bring you back to another memory of my early life as a young pastor. In that same megachurch, I was getting chances to preach and Test out my gifting, and people were responding. And uh, there was a woman in the church that wanted to pay for an all expenses paid trip for me and my wife, who were just newly married at the time, to go to Mount Hermon Conference Center in Northern California for a conference on biblical exposition, at which some of the great Bible expositors from the country would come, and you could spend a whole weekend just drinking in their teaching. And we were excited to go, and we had a fantastic time. I was just sitting in the front row every session, watching what it looked like to teach the Bible with intellect and knowledge and skill. And I was really caught up in it. And then towards the end of the conference, in one of the, the social times, upstairs in the great meeting hall there, I'd made an acquaintance who was from Asia. He was an Asian believer and he said come I wanted to introduce you to Mr. so and so I can't remember his name but up to me walked a very a taller very quiet and just spiritually present Asian man and he said this is the revelation deacon I said I don't understand he comes from a, a village. I think it was either communist China. This is way before a lot of things have changed for the good or the bad. He said he, he comes from our village and we've both made our way to America, but in our village, there was a small group of us as Christ followers and there was only one Bible for our whole gathering, our whole church. And so many wanted to know it and read it and so we took different men in our church and we assigned them to take a book and copy it out and memorize it. I'm not sure I understand. Copy it out <laughs> and memorize it. Stay with me. This is a man that was rich in the Word a long time before any of our distractions and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just, I just want you to stay with me on this. He was given the section of revelation. He was entrusted with it. He was to write out his own copy. He was to memorize it. And then he was to spend and devote his life to meditating on it. So that whenever they had a question about revelation, the church would call for the revelation Deacon. Whenever they wanted a teaching or an answer, they would call for the revelation deacon. And I imagine with other men there, they, they would call on the Matthew deacon or the Genesis deacon. And as I looked at that man in his quiet, contented grace, there was a presence about him that kind of illustrated this passage. And as I look back on that memory just recently... I look back on my young life, how ambitious I was, how enthralled I was with each great platformer that came, how I took notes on how they opened the text or how they phrased an idea, and I wanted so much to be like them. But you know what? I don't remember any of their names, really, one or two, but... I don't remember anything that they said but I do remember meeting and talking and halting English with the revelation deacon it was this I went back in my mind and I said you know Joe you so wanted to be like those guys when in reality God was sort of saying to me but I want you to be like this guy because that's what he wants for all of us someone in whom the Word of God richly dwells. That's what He wants. That's what supernatural living looks like.